The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. Welcome back and happy 2019. We've got uh, Colin Young, Katie Lannon, and Matt Murphy with us as always here on The Takeout. Hi, folks. Happy New Year, Sam. Hi, Sam. Happy New Year. (laughs) And uh, happy 191st General Court. It's a new year, a new session of the legislature. And we've got some new faces, 30 to be exact, 25 House freshmen and five new senators over in the East Wing uh, who joined in the inaugural proceedings this week on Beacon Hill. Katie, you covered the House on Wednesday, uh, both the first session of the new biennium where they swore in the 160 reps, as well as uh, the Democratic caucus earlier on in the morning. Um, Tell us about some of the debate that uh, happened in that caucus. Yeah, that's right, Sam. This is one of the the few times where we're allowed in to a uh, what's typically a closed door caucus. And this was the only one of the four that morning that were open to the press. And, you know, we saw, as was widely expected, Speaker Robert DeLeo, um, the only Democratic nominee to lead the House again. But before that vote and the uh, nominating speeches got underway, we heard from uh, freshman rep Maria Robinson of Framingham, who uh, came forward with a new idea that not for this speaker vote today, but for votes in future years, instead of conducting them by a roll call vote, it's a voice vote to nominate in caucus and then a roll call on the floor. What Rep. Robinson suggested is doing a, a secret ballot in future years. And there are a few uh, who joined her to speak in support of this, a total of uh, six lawmakers with her. They made the point that this would be a way for potential future candidates to test their support, to build coalitions. Um, they made the point that the secret ballot is a Massachusetts invention and that other legislative bodies, including Congress and its own leadership votes, does it this way. But you really heard from both pro and con a kind of good government argument. You know, these proponents of this rule change were talking about how this would stave off kind of the fear of retaliation for challenging the the status quo or the current speaker. And then on the other side, we heard from nine uh, kind of veteran lawmakers who argued against just the the concept of secret ballots, really saying that they're voting on behalf of their constituents. It should be transparent. They should be on record how they vote. Now, it's important to note also that not every vote cast on Beacon Hill is a recorded roll call vote. There are plenty of times we don't know how our lawmakers vote. But this is one instance where House Democrats decided um, on a voice vote that their positions should be recorded with who they support for leadership. And Katie, when it came time for the actual vote for speaker, uh, eight members, uh, a mix of freshmen and incumbents, abstained from the vote, right? That's right, Sam. There were eight present votes among Democrats. Um, Four of those were freshmen, um, and that was Maria Robinson, who I just talked about, uh, Nika Eligardo from Jamaica Plain, Patrick Kearney of Situate, Tammy Gavea of Acton, they were joined by uh, veteran lawmakers, uh, Rep. Russell Holmes, John- Rep. Jonathan Hecht of Watertown, John Rogers of Norwood, and the dean of the house, Angela Scotia of Hyde Park. And, you know, interestingly, we, we've heard a couple different reasons for why someone might take what's essentially a protest vote, right? They're not backing the only other candidate, minority leader Brad Jones, but they're not with 
speaker to Leo necessarily either. Um, uh, Rep. Rogers, uh, who he and Rep. Scotchard didn't vote last time either. They left the chamber entirely. Um, he brought up the issue of term limits, which, of course, no longer apply to the House Speaker. And Rep. Guvea, one of the new freshman lawmakers who I spoke with afterwards, she brought up the issue of, you know, voters wanting new leadership. And that's what she heard on the campaign trail, and that's what she thinks these elections were really about. And so that was kind of the stance she took. Uh, An interesting thing to note is that a couple of these people, um, notably Reps Robinson and Gouveia, these new lawmakers, they were part of a group on the campaign trail who took what they're calling a transparency pledge. And um, Rep Lindsay Sabadosa and Senator Rebecca Rausch were the others who took this, pledging to kind of put the legislature on record on more of their votes. Meaning that they would, for example, stand up with Republicans when Republicans request a roll call vote. That's right. And the the kind of jargon of Beacon Hill, their pledge was that they would stand for roll call votes. So they would add their vote, their support to the sheer number needed to force a roll call vote. Um, And it looks like, you know, whether it's lobbying in in caucus for a a rules change around how speakers are chosen, um, interestingly, pushing for a secret ballot there, um, or just voting present in the speakership vote itself, it looks like some of these lawmakers, these new lawmakers came ready to to try to shake things up in the way they talked about on the campaign trail. Um, Lindsay Sabadosa, the other rep of that transparency group, she did ultimately vote for Speaker DeLeo. She did not vote when her name was called, hmm. but voted after the fact. Had she um, just a little missed bit her window? I'm not sure. We saw her kind of go up to the clerk after and talk to some other lawmakers in the well. But that's where she ended up. And it was uh, kind of interesting to watch. There was a little bit of suspense there. No one was quite sure which way she'd go. Hmm. Uh, Matt, no such drama over in the Senate. Absolutely not, Sam. Uh, you were over there for the first Senate session that day. Uh, what happened over there? Big speech from Karen Spilka. Big speech from Karen Spilka. Unlike over in the House where uh, Speaker DeLeo sometimes waits until later in the year, February, sometimes even March, if he gives it at all to give a sort of agenda setting speech, uh, the Senate president, the new Senate president, Karen Spilka, uh, did give a speech to her members laying out a, a rather big and ambitious agenda for the Senate in the coming year. And of course, uh, Karen Spilka was reelected Senate president. And uh, while she's a familiar name in that title, I mean, this is her first full session uh, leading the session, leading the Senate, I should say, after taking over in July. And she uh, ticked off a number of priorities, uh, the first being uh, adequately funding public education, she said would be a top priority for the Senate. Uh, Interestingly, we heard a day later from Governor Charlie Baker, also seems to be a priority of his as we move into the new year. But I know Colin's going to talk a bit about that later. Uh, Other things she listed, uh, climate change she wants to tackle, uh, an unreliable transportation system, as she put it, uh, as well as mental health parity, which uh, she talked about her own father and how that's near and dear to her heart. So uh, the Senate president really laying down a number of priorities that she wants to tackle uh, in these uh, over the course of these next two years. Another interesting part of Wednesday's session over in the Senate uh, was that Minority Leader Bruce Tarr also gave a speech to sort of kick off the legislative session. Uh, I thought that speech was interesting and noteworthy because it was really uh, one of the few times that there was um, a direct 
allusion, not not even a direct acknowledgement of, but a, a direct allusion to uh, the turbulence and the chaos uh, that we all saw in the Senate almost all of last year uh, as former Senate President Stan Rosenberg first stepped down from the presidency and ultimately resigned from the Senate. Tar talked about uh, the uh, sort of turning the page for the Senate, how this should be a new chapter for the body. Uh, and he pointed out that during that uh, chaos in the Senate, he, as he put it, uh, the Republican minority caucus never once tried to exploit uh, the chaos that really was centered around Democrats in the chamber, a Democrat in the chamber, uh, for their own gain. Uh, and he talked about uh, continuing the bipartisan collaboration in that chamber uh, where uh, Republicans are seriously outnumbered uh, 34 to 6. Yeah, Collins, right. And to your point at the beginning, Sam, really uh, unlike, uh, well, not to overstate the the lack of harmony in the House. I mean, in, in reality, only eight members did vote president, sort of a protest of the Speaker's leadership. But in the Senate, a, a different story. I think the initial vote, 33 to 6, completely along party lines. But then you had Minority Leader Bruce Tarr moving immediately to make it the, the Karen Spilka, the unanimous choice of the Senate, was which is sort of tradition in that branch, uh, and him uh, putting his uh, full faith and confidence in her leadership and her ability to work with Republicans, even if they don't always agree on some of these finer policy points. Bipartisanship, Colin, also a big theme in Governor Baker's uh, second inaugural speech on Thursday, which you covered. Yeah, exactly. Bruce Starr sort of gave a preview um, of some of the themes that the governor was going to hit on the very next day. Um, and really, what we heard from Charlie Baker uh, in his second inaugural address on Thursday uh, was really a lot of the same. He pointed to a number of accomplishments uh, uh, for his administration's first term. Uh, he specifically cited budget management, having uh, reduced the use of one-time revenues uh, in the state budget adding money to the state's rainy day fund, uh, lowering caseloads for the Department of Children and Families, doubling the earned income tax credit, um, working towards two major clean energy uh, procurements. Those were among the accomplishments of his first term. And he said that uh, his administration was able to accomplish all of that and, as he put it, uh, make Massachusetts a better place to live and work, uh, quote, by putting the public interest ahead of partisan politics. And that was really the theme of his address, um, was that, look, he these are the things that my administration has accomplished because we were able to work with the Democratic legislature and find common ground there. And really, uh, he looked ahead a bit to what uh, his second term work is going to be. And it's, as I said, really a lot of the same. A lot of what he mentioned uh, are issues that will carry over from the past session. Uh, he mentioned specifically health care, for example. That's one area where uh, there's shared agreement among uh, the governor and both branches of the legislature that uh, something more needs to be done after the uh, collapse of talks uh, back in July. Over the um, health care bill. Exactly. Uh, the governor said he's going to be filing a health care bill later this year. He says it will address the struggles of community hospitals, which is something that the um, uh, House's bill uh, that failed uh, last session tried to do. Uh, the governor said his bill will address telemedicine, some scope of practice issues, and mental health parity. Uh, it talked about the MBTA, which of course has been an issue throughout the governor's first term. Um, interesting, uh, I thought it was interesting, at least in, in his speech, the governor uh, talked about the year 2020. And he said that in 2020, the T's automatic fare collection system will be coming online. That will provide the T with all sorts of data on how riders actually use the system. And he said that once they have that data, which 
won't even start to be collected until 2020. He said then that will present huge opportunities to improve service at the MBTA. So certainly something that will carry through his second term as well. Sure. And he talked about education funding, too. And that was really the big one. Um, again, an issue where there's broad agreement um, to do something, exactly what they do, uh, let's see. But uh, the governor said that in his budget uh, that he'll file later on this month, uh, he will include what he called updates to the state's education funding formula. I chatted a bit with Education Secretary Jim Pizer afterwards. Uh, he said that the governor's proposal will represent a, quote, significant new investment in K-12 through education. Um, he wouldn't uh, directly answer whether that plan will require new revenues, but he did say the governor's plan will include a funding mechanism to ensure that it's all paid for. Sure. And uh, you also got a little bit of reaction from uh, House Speaker Robert DeLeo. Um, as I think Matt noted, um, DeLeo doesn't always do a uh, policy speech at the start of the session, um, but you, you heard a little bit from him. Yeah, and what we heard... Um was really that the governor's speech checked all the boxes that the speaker uh, had in mind. The speaker liked the um, bipartisan tone of the address, liked the you know theme of working together. Uh, and as we've said, there's a lot of broad agreement that uh, these issues, education, funding, health care, these issues need to be taken care of. Um, so DeLeo said, yes, the House is, is very interested in seeing what the governor is going to propose for education funding. Uh, it remains to be seen whether they'll leave that in the budget or if the House will try to uh, separate it out and, and, and consider it as its own piece. And I, I think that's one of the things that sometimes is most interesting in weeks like these where we hear these speeches and you hear the governor uh, and, the, and the Senate president and the speaker and even people like Bruce Tarr tick off their priorities and they all sound like they're on the same page on a lot of these policy prescriptions. And yet when you get down to the details, that's where the problems emerge. And w two quotes in particular jumped out at me this week, listening to Karen Spilka declare the uh, time for uh, small ideas and incremental change is over, she said. And then you flash forward a, a day later and, and Governor Baker was talking about, and, and I have it here, he said, many times uh, public policy is a story written frame by frame by many players who write it over time, relentlessly pursuing an objective. That more incremental uh, uh, positioning that the governor has historically right. taken, and it's worked for him, but he's a lot more cautious. Uh, and it, it, it remains to be seen whether or not the Senate will come out and really put some big proposals on the table. Uh, and I'm specifically thinking about big spending proposals and plans to pay for those proposals that could lead to some friction down, uh, down the line. Well, now that they're back and things are getting back into the swing of things, uh, Katie, what can we expect to see coming up this month as we return to the normal uh, routine on Beacon Hill? Yeah, it's really going to be kind of back to work after the holidays and the campaign trail before that. We're going to see the uh, freshman lawmakers, including the 25 new reps who are sharing uh, communal office space known as the bullpen. They're going to be trying to find their way uh, around the building, get acclimated, meet everyone they need to meet, and uh, they'll be joining with their veteran counterparts in, in filing the, the many, many bills that'll start to form the legislative agenda. Um, we're going to see the governor's budget filed later this month as well. And in the meantime, we've got, you know, everyone's going to kind of be buckled down getting their work done. And we're going to be hearing from a, a slew, I'm sure, of advocacy groups and uh, interested parties who want to make sure their issues are on the agenda. We've got for instance, coming up next week, I think a press conference on uh, supplemental heating assistance. They're looking to get 
some some money out of the legislature on that. So it's going to begin in earnest. You're right, Katie. All, all ahead of that uh, bill filing deadline on January 18th. Put it on your calendars. Hey, it's been a long week, folks. Yes, Sam. So much so that uh, Monday, the governor signed the uh, bill to extend unemployment uh, insurance benefits for locked out workers. And then uh, on Wednesday, National Grid and the two uh, unions that uh, have been in uh, have been locked out since June reached a tentative agreement. And we didn't even have time to uh, uh, spill one word on that here on the podcast. Today. And it feels like weeks ago. We, we almost forgot, Sam, that you almost missed the grand reopening of the TAM on New Year's Eve as you were <laughs> stuck here. <laughs> Uh, covering, uh, I think, uh, the Senate, w- was it in? Uh, um, as, uh, I was as, in the Senate till after 10 as, o'clock. As they tempted uh, the ball uh, before deciding that uh, New Year's Day was going to be when they would uh, conclude the 190th General Court. Got a good view of the Boston Common fireworks out of the Gardner Auditorium basement window, though. And there may have been a teensy little bit of Elizabeth Warren news this week, too, that we didn't happen to make our way around to, but chances are you guys have heard about that somewhere else. What, is she running for president? <laughs> Uh, we'll, we'll be watching. All right, thanks, folks. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.